This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by our Plaisen Basin service. Our Plaisen Basin's North America service provides the most comprehensive, forward-looking analysis of oil and gas exploration and development activity in all unconventional resource plays in both the U.S. and Canada. This service includes play analysis with written commentary and underlying data. To learn more about the Plaisen Basin service, visit www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Jessica Nelson. In this episode of Upstream in Perspective, I have the pleasure of hosting two of our Plays and Basins experts. Reed Olmsted and Emmerich Kugler join me to talk about trends and key plays we expect to drive strong U.S. natural gas supply growth, as well as how this growth impacts North American oil and gas markets. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks. Gas production rose by more than 7 BCFD in 2017 as operators stated a preference for oil-focused drilling. Do we expect that pace of growth to continue in 2018? Yeah, I I think we do. We saw a lot of growth last year, and in 2018, we're expecting another 4 BCF a day, uh, tapering to 3 BCF a day of growth in 2019. But in aggregate, when we look all the way out to 2023, we're looking at producing 91 BCF a day by the end of December that year. So that's a lot of growth. We haven't seen, particularly in the next couple of years, this type of growth uh, for quite a while. We were stagnant for a couple of years as the as markets reset and the whole, the whole oil side of the story was playing out. But we've seen a lot of growth uh, in supply uh, last year and in the coming ones. And really, there are two factors that are driving that primarily, certainly through 2023. Uh, we're looking at a lot of LNG exports coming on stream. Uh, we've got a lot of visibility into what's coming, what's been permitted, uh, what's been actually uh, broken ground, what the capacities are. And so we see a lot of LNG exports coming on stream over the next few years. The other aspect that's driving a lot of growth uh, between now and 23 is exports to Mexico. And this is something we've been watching for a while. It's going to actually provide a lot of relief to the Permian Basin. Um, and in particular, as we as we get the, the side of the Mexican side of those pipes connected up to what's already been constructed in the U.S. So we're seeing those two things coming out pretty strong um, over the next few years. Beyond that, uh, after 23, we're going to see a lot of power demand growth. Uh, that's baked into our forecast. So we'll continue to see rising gas. Suffice to say, tapering 4 BCF this year, 3 BCF a day of growth next year. Uh, and, and then after 23, we're going to get a lot of kick in from that power side. Yeah, and that, and that is despite we, we went back and refreshed some research on the IRR, oil versus gas. Um, and they had a question there about preference for oil-focused drilling. And uh, it's really putting companies in the position that for the companies that didn't get into the oil, that didn't make a purchase in the Permian or somewhere else, there's a lot of pure play uh, operators that are in the gas space. And that's kind of what's driving production growth as well, uh, they don't really have much in terms of alternatives, so uh, there's still some growth to go in the dry gas plays. And will the Appalachian Basin continue to drive gas growth over the coming years? Well, yeah, Jessica, I think that unquestionably Appalachia, uh, which is in our minds the Marcellus and the Utica, are going to continue to be a very strong uh, source of supply. We've, we've got an, an amazing amount of gas uh, that we can develop even under current economics there. And so the, really the only thing that's that's hampering it are going to be uh, pipeline capacity. And even at that point, we've got 8 BCF a day of, of pipeline coming on stream over the next several years. So even pipeline capacity is not going to not shut it down that much. 
the other system that we see or the other component that we see really driving supply growth is going to be associated gas. And, and really that's, that's coming out of the Eagleford and, and primarily the Permian Basin. We've got the Permian Basin essentially doubling from where it is now. We'll get it to 15 BCF a day by 2023. So a lot of gas in that, on that side too. Um, but really when we look about Appalachia, certainly in the near term, it is, it is uh, one of the two most material drivers of supply. Once you get past 23, I think we run into some headwinds. Yeah, that, that ABCF of pipe a day that you mentioned, Reed, um, that's sort of the, the last of the lower cost transportation that can get down to the Gulf Coast or the Southeast. Uh, expansions after that, the transport starts getting pretty expensive. Uh, that adds another 40 or 50 cents onto these break even. So that starts changing up the supply once we get to past this uh, next couple of years worth of pipeline growth. Uh, so that'll change things then, but for the short term, Appalachia's in great shape. Yep. So who are the operators leading growth in gas production, and are they all in the Appalachian Basin? Well, primarily I think they are. When you, If we're looking at gas for gas sake, so let, let's cut out the associated gas component of this. When you when you look at the operators that are strong and, and committed to gas, uh, the Appalachian Basin is, is sort of the, their playground. So you've got operators like Cabot, Range, Southwestern, uh, even Chesapeake to some extent. And then uh, you've got a, 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 another contingency of, of operators in, in the Utica, all of whom can get solid economics at these prices. Uh, so I think that, that those are the guys that are going to do pretty well. Yeah, and I would add in that group, there's not a lot of diversification. So uh, Chesapeake, of course, they've got assets all over the U.S. Uh, but the rest of that group, companies you mentioned, Reed, like uh, Gulfport, EQT, Range, uh, there's a few of them that have some secondary assets, but really they're focused on Appalachia. You know, Gulfport has some scoop assets, Range has some Cotton Valley assets, but they're still primarily Appalachian operators. So if they want to drill well, it basically has to be an Appalachian. And Emory, you do a lot more looking at the economics on these guys. I mean, are they all pretty economic under the current price outlook? Yeah, I mean, we have most of the Utica, most of the Marcellus is breaking even somewhere between $2 and two seventy-five. So they're in pretty good shape for the prices right now. Gotcha. So what drives the uh, gas interest, given the potential to earn higher returns in oil-directed drilling? So it's interesting. When you look at this industry now, it's no longer really an oil and gas industry. It's an oil or gas industry. You have a lot of specialization. Operators have placed their bets on either liquids or gas production. And when you think about why that is, you have to look back to 2013 and 2014 before the oil price collapse. And at that time, the Permian Basin was starting to ramp up and it was gaining interest. Uh, Central Oklahoma was just starting to be developed uh, in the scoop stack. And so when, when price collapsed, um, there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, uncertainty in oil price, uncertainty in, in geology of these uh, new, new plays. And so I think a lot of gas operators said, we're going to stay back. We're in an asset. We're in a commodity that's less volatile, less uncertainty. Uh, and so now they don't necessarily have the option to go to those plays because the opportunity set's gone. You know, the Permian's leased up. Everybody's in development mode, central Oklahoma as well. So what's driving it is the fact that it's all they've got. Now, to an earlier point that Emory uh, brought up, we, we have done some work on, on uh, looking at the, the returns of oil and gas wells. And the, the takeaway from that was really 
your premium gas wells on a returns basis are about as competitive as a middling liquids producing asset in a top tier play. So your middling Eagleford, uh, sort of your middling Permian well, provides roughly the same amount of IRR, or has a similar IRR to your premium Appalachia wells. So these operators know the situation they're in. Some of them are undergoing this sort of uh, case for change concept of should we move into liquids? What's the market outlook for liquids uh, right now? Uh, what is it? What do we think the liquids are going to do in the next five years? But it's entering a different geopolitical uh, risk mentality that, that it takes a different look on their business. So uh, we may see some changes in the next few years, but for right now, the reason these guys continue to invest is it's pretty much all they have anymore. Do you have any concerns around sweet spot exhaustion as LNG exports are forecast to increase? And is the Haynesville the key play to watch? You know, when we look at it, uh, boiling it down, the Haynesville sort of sets the price for U.S. gas. Um, you've got associated gas, which is coming. Uh, you've got Appalachia, which is economic. And so as we see price go up, we'll see more rigs added to the Haynesville. And as price falls, we'll see uh, activity there fall off. Um, so, so yeah, we think that the Haynesville is really sort of the swing supply uh, for the U.S. system. Now, with regards to LNG and sweet spot in the Haynesville, I think it is a problem. I think, you know, we've got operators that are moving to the periphery. We're, we're about to release a report um, on the Haynesville in particular, watching BP move back in and start activating rigs there. Um, the economics work for them. And, but they're not going back to the core. Uh, the core activity is, is falling off as, as it gets drilled up. We're seeing the rise of specialists in the Haynesville. So um, you've got operators like Vine, Indigo, GEP, uh, and a few others that are private equity backed. These guys don't need that sweet spot. They're going in and working the geology, working the operations, uh, and optimizing each individual well to where they can get compelling economics from what was historically thought to be sort of second-tier acreage. So I think we're seeing some sweet spot exhaustion. Uh, it is a, potentially a concern, but we're seeing operators put some engineering and some, some solid mental horsepower behind it to try to counteract that. Now, I'll say that this is sort of the first play where we've seen that happen. So uh, the, <laughs> the, the last chapter of the book is yet to be written. You know, it is something we're watching, something that we're aware of, something that we bring up to with our clients who are operators, um, and they're they're working to to mitigate those concerns and continue to drive strong economics out of you know what we've always considered second tier acreage. And how about any new gas plays? Do you see any new gas plays emerging over the coming twelve months or so? Well, the the short answer there is no. There's not really going to be a lot of new gas directed drilling. Uh, Reed stole my thunder there a little bit talking about the Haynesville uh, because that's an interesting play that, that's still a bit of an enigma. Uh, you know, just when you're ready to count the Haynesville out, uh, like Reed mentioned, BP goes back in, ExxonMobil goes back in around that Shelby trough, for I think BP calls it the south of Haynesville play. Um, so there's some opportunity in, in the in the reemergence of the Haynesville, um, the Utica in Pennsylvania. You know, we started to see that take off. Uh, EQT had some big wells in Greene County, and then other operators started filling in all the way up to Shell and Consol, now CNX, uh, really drilling with some pretty good success in the Utica uh, in Pennsylvania. And there are some, there's some spuds, there's some permits out there right now. So we'll be watching those well results that 
help kind of form what we think is the ultimate size of the Utica. Um, you, you know, we really need a price signal uh, or uh, something along those lines to drive exploration. It could happen uh, that we get more dry gas plays. We know there's a lot of dry gas resource out there in Appalachia and out in the Rockies, but uh, it's going to be a few years before we see anything substantial outside of Appalachia and associated gas, and maybe they need to build a little bit. Yeah, I'd say really the only thing operators might be trying is to further delineate existing acreage. So we've heard talk about the, the Bossier uh, in the Haynesville region. We've heard talk about the Burkett up in Appalachia, but those are all targets that can be accessed through existing and producing acreage. Nobody's out there really trying to put capital at risk to find uh, find the next Haynesville. And I think the reason why is, you know, the system doesn't need the next Haynesville. We're, we're pretty good with Appalachia. We've got that big wedge of associated gas coming, and there's enough identified resource that uh, that can float on top and react to price that for a sustained period, we're not going to have to need to go find uh, the new resource. Reed and Emery, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you'll join us again in the future. Well, thank you, Jessica. It's been a pleasure. Right. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you to Reed and Emery for joining the podcast today to share insights on gas growth in North America. And remember, you can find energy insights from our team of experts anytime at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.